You're listening to Harper Audio Presents. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. With me today is Richard Ford, author of the new book, Let Me Be Frank With You, which heralds the return of the protagonist Frank Bascombe, also featured in The Sports Writer and its sequel, Independence Day, the only novel ever to win the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award, and The Lay of the Land. Welcome, Richard Ford. Thank you, Henry. It's a pleasure. I've heard you say that books act on you. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Well, books, uh, from the standpoint of people who write them, me, um, are, are, are meant for others. They aren't self-expressions. They're, they're things you make in order that you can then affect the lives of others. So at, 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 at base, it means that, that I make something that will affect the life of someone else. And in the process of affecting the life of someone else, Books contain all sorts of rhetorical strategies, strategies in diction, strategies in syntax, strategies in structure, which actually do, um, well, I said it before, they work on the reader. When you, when you read a poem, you're being worked on by the choice of words, by where lines break, what the rhythm in the line is. and you, It's not passive, in other words. A book doesn't affect you passively. And I've also heard you say that, that readers realize this. They know when they have been acted on. Subliminally. And they're okay with it, provided that they've been acted on to great profit. That's right. So the first thing I want to say is thank you for this book, and thank you for acting on us to great profit. Well, I hope it's put to great profit. That's, it's, it's, that's about the only hope I actually entertain in the world. And I also understand that <clears throat> the reason that you brought Frank back now, after years, I, I've read that you admitted that you said you would never bring him back, but that you've been taking notes and that you've been carrying him around. And I've read that the reason why you chose to bring him back now was related to Hurricane Sandy. So tell us a bit about that. Well, <clears throat> that's true. More than related to Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Sandy uh, created in me the commotion that um, the book resulted from. Um, my wife and I had lived in New Orleans for years and years, and had, although we weren't in Hurricane Katrina, we had come after Hurricane Katrina and um, worked in building houses, worked in community development, because my wife's an urban planner. So we had a lot of storage of hurricane experience. And when Sandy took place, we were in New York. <clears throat> and um, although my wife actually was flying, if you can believe it, flying to Detroit that day, and um, so she was buffeted around. So as soon as we could get back to New York, because we both teach at Columbia, uh, we went down to Seaside Park and Seaside Heights across the Bay of Thomas River. And on the way back, after seeing this calamity, I just started generating lines in my brain, which is what I do instead of thinking. And so um, these lines were lines that I thought, well, these are, these are fresh thoughts to me. And I can use Frank Bascom because Frank Bascom to me is a New Jersey instrument, a sure. New Jersey creature. So that's how it happened. What were the consequences of the storm that the media wouldn't ever pay attention to? And what led you to structure it as the four novellas? Or do, you, do you think of them as novellas or long short stories? I think of them you... as long stories. And do, what is the difference in your mind between a long short story and... And novella. Nomenclature. Okay, yeah. so not much. I, I, a few years ago, I, I did a, an anthology called The Grant a Book of the American Long Story, but I had meant to call it The Grant a Book of the American Novella. But I did. It, about the only scholarly work I've ever done in my life, I just read everything and all of the materials. I came to conclude that in the 20th century, 
novella has stopped being anything but a term of art. Okay. It doesn't really have any scholarly, it doesn't have any structural, it doesn't have any specificity. It's just a story longer than a short story, shorter than a novel that you could read on a long train journey. So what led you to choose this way of presenting the stories? What led me to choose it was I didn't have the wherewithal to write a 400-page novel. <laughs> I had just finished writing Canada, which oh, I co-published. <laughs> I think that's my favorite. I, I love all the Frank books, but Canada is so beautiful. Thank you. So anyway, I thought I have this material, I have this voice, I have this instrumentation. I can maybe write something that won't kill me. I get to the end of writing books, and it's pretty, for me, arduous. Getting, I'm, I'm dyslexic, so I have to get all those words into the right places. Yeah, and there's a there's a moment in Let Me Be Frank with You where that question is raised. You know, how do you know how do you know when you get to the end? Right. And Frank it, it said, comes appropriately enough. Yeah, at the end. Yeah. Near the end. Yeah. <coughs> and he says, if I've, done, if I've done saying everything I need to say, so right. I guess that's it. Used up all my words. Yeah, and another another thing that I've I've heard you say is that that you think that characters are unfixed. And I, I think you've said that you believe that people have histories and not characters. And in my opinion, that is a very generous and sort of optimistic Thank expression. You. So do because I. Because I think it, it gives us an opportunity to still change and still grow. And I'm wondering, was there, was there someone or something that led you to that belief? Was there a distinct moment when somebody was generous with you in believing that you could change and grow, or did it just come out of just a, a, your lifetime? It came out of self-knowledge. Okay. That's what it came out of. I'm a great uh, student of Emerson. And Emerson has an essay on character in which he basically tries to express what he thinks human character is. Emerson says that we have a mass, that there is some sort of whole that we represent, a kind of platonic ideal. I've never found that to be true, mm-hmm. and, I, but, and until you said it just now, I've actually never thought of it as quite as optimistic as, as what you say. seems a little more chaotic, seems a little less directed. In most people's lives, they want direction, and if they can ascribe the directing force to being something inside themselves, something, in, something integral, something a mass, a whole, then that's somehow consoling. I, like you, though, think it means that I don't have to be who I was 25 years ago, yeah. it, particularly if who I was 25 years ago wasn't very creditable. It also means that having grown up in the South, which was a terrible place when I was growing up there, um, I was able to exceed all of those constrictions yeah. of the South yeah. and make myself be something different. As you've gone about in the last several weeks talking to people about the new book, are they talking to you about how they've received Frank differently? I feel <coughs> like after not being with him for a while and, right. you know, the eight years, I feel like I've grown up and I've changed. And I, I, I read it and then I went back to the previous books and I thought, like, for instance, I noticed... In this book, you seem to bring poets and poetry in, in a regular way. And yes. as and I really noticed it, and I was turning the corners down. And then I went back and I thought, did he do that in he the previous it. books? And I, and I just didn't pick up on that or not. And so I, I wanted to ask you. It may be a little more intense this time. It may be because there were fewer pages yeah, in this book that, that those kinds of ascriptions um, stand out a little more. But even from the beginning in the sports writer, back when I was writing it in the 80s, the sports writer starts with, with Theodore Retke, 
Starts yeah. with a red key point. And then Frank always Frank always returns to Red Key because Red yeah. Key was from Saginaw and Frank went to Michigan and Red Key went to Michigan. All all of these <laughs> things, you know. So but uh beyond that, um poetry just plays such a big part in my life. Uh my teachers were poets, Donald Hall, Galway mm. Canal. I yeah. learned to read aloud from James Wright. So um it's 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 never been far from my affections. I've had the opportunity to hear Galway Canal read. Oh. You remind me of Galway Canal now that you say that. Well, that's, that's that you couldn't you, you couldn't say anything. I, I'm crazy to about me. him. He was a yeah. He was a beast. Yeah, he's he's, he's <laughs> terrific. Another thing that you've talked about is um, the sound and the rhythm of words yes. and how you pay attention to that. Do you do you read your work aloud as you're as you're working on always, it? Always, always. Yeah. I read my work aloud partly because I'm dyslexic. Yeah. <clears throat> and if I, and, and if I don't read it aloud, I can't. I can't govern every word. I'm very interested in the flow of beats and and yeah. stresses and non-stresses in sentences that I write. Interesting. But that's really, you know, that's just for me. I, I really don't think that readers must or should or even could maybe be um, sensitive to those kinds of rhythms. I'm sensitive to them, and by being interested in them, it allows me greater governance over the sentences that I write. People have said to me, and I always think they're kind of lying. They always say, I love your sentences. And, and I say, whoa, I don't, I don't know why you would. <laughs> <clears throat> Do you listen to audiobooks? Never. I've never listened to an audiobook in my and life. And why is that? And I hope never to. Now tell me why that is. Because Bruce Springsteen is on in the car. Well, that was my next question. What kind of music <laughs> do you listen to? Well, well, I listen to all kinds of music. I'm, I'm kind of a um, music musical vagabond, really. You know, I grew up in the South. So when I was 17 years old, I was sitting on Howlin' Wolf's amplifier in, in Oxford, Mississippi. And, and rhythm and blues was part of my yeah, life. And that's... then Bruce came along and sort of changed everything. But but beyond that, I, I really like Chet Baker. Mm-hmm. I, I really like uh, mm-hmm. Fado. I, I you know, <clears throat> there's nothing that I probably would throw out just because of what it was. Yeah. Now I want to talk to you as a reader. <clears throat> what was the last book that you spoke about with a friend, and what did you guys say? The last book is the book that I haven't quite finished yet. It's called Rebel Yell by C.S. Gwynn, which is a, a, a sort of a rather subjective biography of Stonewall Jackson. Now, I know that sounds like the least interesting book in the world to most people, and I would have thought it was the least interesting book in the world to me growing up in Mississippi. I'm sick to death of Southern stuff. Yeah, I would not have War. called that with you. It's so interesting. It's so interesting. Stonewall Jackson was, Thomas Jackson, was such an interesting human being, such a a bag of opposites that he completely exceeds and transcends his his reputation or who you might have known him to be in, as a general in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Believe me, I'm bored sick by the Civil War. But yeah. that's not why I'm reading it. It's just a... It, C.S. Gwynn is a wonderful writer. And I talked to my wife about it. I talked to John Banville about it. And, um, he, you know, subtle, uh, thoughtful, easy to read, replete. Marvelous. What book would you recommend to a 13-year-old boy? One of your toughest customers. Wildlife, and I wrote it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And tell why us not? I mean, why I not? Why, what am I supposed to say? Catch her in the rye? No. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> now, what are your Desert Island books? You only get about two or three. 
But they have to be ones I've read. They can't be ones I haven't read, because why would I take a book I hadn't read? Because well, that would be, knowing that that would I'm be very be risky. Forever. I would take Parade's End by Ford Maddox Ford. I would take The Hamlet, The Mansion, and The Town by Faulkner. And, and I, I might even take, if I felt ascetic enough, I might even take To the Lighthouse. Oh, my goodness, really? Uh-huh. I would never call that a desert island book. Why no, To I'm the not, Lighthouse? I'm not a dumbbell. I know you're not a dumbbell. <laughs> I, that's very interesting. It's I a great book. To, yeah, I know. I'm, it's a great book. I, I, and and I might take uh, The Sheltering Sky by Paul Oh, Dulles. yeah. See, that makes a little more sense to me. I guess uh, you think of Desert Island, you do think of Heft, which yes. you don't normally associate with yeah. To the Lighthouse. But Well, you know, to the uh, since we started off talking about how books act on us, the middle section of To the Lighthouse, which is called Time Passes, is one of those, for me, influential structurings of a book in mm. which I feel totally acted on. Okay. I mean, she's, it's, and Sheltering Sky is a little bit the same way. You're going along, you're going along, and going along, and then she just stops for a while and says, we're going to take some time out, but you're going to have to live through this little middle section. Then I'm going to resume, and everybody's going to be older and have died, yeah. and things will have changed. I love that. Yeah, I'm going to have to reread that. Well. I haven't read that in a long time. So I wanted to pick a passage... <clears throat> The, uh, a a short one, because I didn't want to ask you for too much. Let's although get my there was, specs on here. Yes, absolutely. Actually, oh. I'd like something at the very end, but I didn't want to give anything. You know, sort what do you? Of what did you like at the end? I'm well, I just like loved better. all of this at the end of Eddie and all the. I loved all the death stuff. So, and it's just how uncomfortable Frank was in the death room. Death is fun. And well, just how uncomfortable he was, and it was. I don't know. I thought it was beautiful at the end. Thank you. So did I. Actually, it made me cry. Yeah. When it, I wrote it. It, this book also made me laugh so many times, but it yeah. it does make you cry. <clears throat> well, if nothing's serious, nothing. And if nothing's funny, nothing's serious, is my view. All right. Okay, let's just try this with you, Chuck. I think it's the best one. Out on the Little League World Championship Boulevard, Tom's River, nothing looks radically changed storm-wise. In a purely retinal sense, the barrier island across the bay has done its God-given work for the inland communities, though... Much lies in ruins here, back in the neighborhoods. Traffic is anemic along the once miracle mile headed toward the bridge. It's plain, though, that Tom's River has claimed some survivor's cred. A beardless Santa sits on a red plastic milk crate in front of the launch pad coffee hut. He's clearly a Mexican. A red printed cardboard sign resting against his knee. Coffee gives you courage. Feliz Navidad. I wave, but he only stares back, as if I might be giving him the finger. Farther on, the free at last bail bonds has only a single car parked in front, as do a couple of boxy asbestos-sided bars set back in the gravel lots. Days were before the shore got rediscovered and prices went nuts. You could drive over from Pottstown, take the kids in your honeybee for a weekend, and get away for a couple of hundred. All that's a dream now even after the storm. A big sign, part of its message torn off by the winds, advertises the Glen Campbell goodbye tour. Half of Glen's smiling, too handsome face remains. A photo from the 60s before Tanya and the boozing and the cocaine. A paper placard in front of one of the bars stolen off someone's lawn after the election has been repurposed, and instead of Obama-Biden now announces we're back, so fuck you, Sandy. 
driving. I've got Copeland's fanfare filling the interior space at 1030. I bought the whole oeuvre online. As always, I'm stirred by the opening oboes giving ground to the strings and the kettle drums and the double basses. It's a high sky morning in Wyoming. Joel McRae's galloping across a windy prairie. Barbara Britton, fresh from Vermont, stands out front of their sodbuster cabin. Why is he so late? Is there trouble? What can I do, a woman alone? I've worn out three discs this fall. Almost any Copeland today, it's the Pittsburgh Symphony, conducted by some Israeli, can persuade me on almost any given day that I'm not just any old man doing something old men do, driving to the grocery for soy milk, visiting the periodontist, motoring to the airport to greet young soldiers, sometimes against their will. It doesn't take much to change my perspective on a given day or a given moment or a given anything. Sally slipped a Copeland in my Christmas stocking a year ago, Billy the Kid, and it's had positive effects. I bought the Tibetan Book of the Dead and Dying as a present to myself, but haven't made much progress there yet, though I need to. Thank you so much. And I forgot to ask you, are you a sports fan? I used to be kind of a sports fan. No longer? Not much, no. Um, uh, I was a sports writer for yeah. a while, and always I was the sports editor of my high school newspaper. I used to be a stringer for the Commercial Appeal in Memphis, and I worked for Inside Sports and wrote for Sports Illustrated. But I'm, but I'm still interested in the games. And if you read sports, and even if you go to TV and watch sports, all you hear about are athletes, peccadillos, and their drug history, and their marital strife, and who's paying for what, and how yeah. much they're making. Yeah. I just want to I just want to watch the game. And yeah. We don't get to do that much anymore. We've all sort of, the whole world, this is a kind of Frank Bascom line that I would write down, the whole world has become ad hominem. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I really appreciate your time. People, okay. Terry was asking me what kind of lines, you know, do you write down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frank. So when I, <clears throat> I sort of naturally generate lines out of my brain, such as the whole world's become at hominem. Yeah. I would write that write down. Write that down. Like, so yeah. do you have scraps of paper or do you have a notebook? Like, how do you write it down? Let's see. Do you have like a, is it going to be a, one of those, um, oh, it's one of those perfect, I actually have that exact same one in the same color. I have to get them in the loud colors or I have to get or you lose them. And you have, a, you have several of them. And then you, yeah, moleskin. And then you put it in a drawer and then you take that out when you, yeah. yeah. If I, if I write in it very much, then I rip the pages out and put them in the freezer in, in my house because I'm afraid I'll lose the notebook. So you can In the see, freezer. Yeah, because this thing, I know where they are. Thank you for listening. Harper Audio Presents is edited by Sharon Matlin, with production help from Jennifer Monroe. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and the books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents. Harper Audio Presents.